Last week, we, uh, we took a look at Isaiah 6, and we saw Isaiah in the throne room of God, overwhelmed by his inadequacy, by his sin, and, and realizing that in the presence of a holy God, he, he could not exist. And so he cries out a, a confession of sin, and in response, he is cleansed by the living coal of the tongs of an angel. And then he is sent into the mission field. And we saw that we, like Isaiah, have been cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and his resurrection, and that we too have been sent into the mission field of God. This week we get a a bit more of a picture of what that mission field looks like. We're going to be spending some time in Isaiah 24 and then some time in Isaiah 26. These are prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. And in them we see, we see two cities. And as I was reading through the text and the, the recognition that this was a tale of two cities, I was reminded of the opening sentence of the historical novel by that name written by Charles Dickens in 1859. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Now Dickens was writing about two physical cities. The book is about Paris and and London. And and the story takes place amid the conditions that led up to the French Revolution and the reign of terror. But just as the noisiest authorities of the time could recognize that their period of turmoil surrounding, or that the, the period of turmoil surrounding the French Revolution resembled their time as well, We also recognize that there are elements of that quote that resemble the time into which Isaiah is prophesying and that compare incredibly accurately to our time as well. And so we, too, live in a tale of two cities. The two cities that we see in our text this morning are not physical locations like Paris and France, however. And their story, as we've begun to recognize, isn't confined to to one period of history. It's a story that continues from from before the time of Isaiah into our present time and, and will continue on until the good Lord comes again. The first city that we read about is our world. We find its account in Isaiah 24. Now, we aren't going to read the entire chapter. But I'll pick up in in verse 4 and read through verse 13. Isaiah 24, verses 4 through 13. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and, and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The new wine dries up, and the vine withers all the merrymakers groan. The joyful 
timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Thus ends the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in this tale of two cities, the first city that we see is a ruined city. It lies desolate. The world as we know it is is falling apart. We are breaking apart at the seams. People are incredibly divided to the point where some have wondered if if reconciliation is is even possible. Sin is accepted and, and defended. Racism, sexual immorality, debauchery, lying, stealing, murder... Name a sin, and you'll find someone willing to defend it. Science has become a god, but even scientists can't agree on what they are observing. Truth has been replaced by perception. Facts have been replaced by opinion. Nuance is dead. We are told to find a camp and defend it. And if we decide that we don't fit into a camp, then we become the target, pra- we become target practice for, for both sides while they prepare to wage war on each other. There are times sitting back and taking it all in that it feels like the world has gone mad. In a sermon given after Rome was sacked by the Goths in AD 410, Augustine, the prolific theologian and philosopher often known as Saint Augustine said this, You are surprised that the world is losing its grip? That the world has grown old? Think of man! He is born, he he grows up, he becomes old. Old age has many complaints. Coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxiety, terrible tiredness. A man grows old, he is full of complaints. The world is old. It is full of pressing tribulations. This was written over a thousand years ago. The world was old then, and and man, it is older even still. Now, there are things, uh, they're not getting better. The world is not magically healing itself. It didn't find a fountain of youth. It's not Benjamin Button and getting younger and stronger as it ages. The world is old, and it is full of pressing tribulations. And we're not getting any younger ourselves, are we? I look at three-week-old little Noah, and then I think of of baby Luke, whose first birthday we celebrated two weeks ago, and it's shocking how much Noah will change in the next year. And I know that though he seems like such an innocent little dude right now, he is in fact not innocent, but is already a sinner. And as we grow, we get better and better at sinning, so that by the time we have matured, we are, each of us, prolific sinners. 
And then these prolific sinners are all unleashed on each other. We are, each of us, so very good at chasing after what we want and what we desire. We are so very good at creating idols made in our own image. We are so very good at pushing our own flawed agendas while discrediting and devaluing those among us with whom we disagree. Yes, even and sometimes especially Christians and the church fall into these patterns. So how are we doing with that? And can we even see it? It's no wonder the world feels like it's burning. It's no wonder that the city is desolate. And as we wrestle with that, I'd, I'd like to finish the quote from Augustine's sermon. And I'm just going to start from the beginning, so you're going to hear some of it again. But it just flows together well. You are surprised that the world is losing its grip, that the world has grown old. Think of man. He is born. He grows up. He becomes old. Old age has many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxiety, terrible tiredness. A man grows old, he is full of complaints. The world is old. It is full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ, who says to you, the world is passing away, the world is losing its grip, the world is short of breath. Do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. The world itself does not have powers of regeneration, but Christ does. The power of God at work in our hearts and our lives does. And as Augustine wrestled with the implications of this, this crumbling world and the powers of regeneration present in the living God, his struggle produced a book, one of his seminal works titled, The City of God. In this book, he proposed that mankind consists basically of two groups of people, two cities, as it were. There is the city of man, the nations and cultures and businesses and ideas and trends and politics and moralities of this present age. However much they disagree on the surface, they are all, in fact, united at the profoundest level. They are all against God. The human race is deeply united in building its own world, its own way, on its own terms. And that construction of reality is, is passing away. It cannot and will not last. And so we have the desolate city of Isaiah, chapter 24. But there is another city. This other city is the one we read about in Isaiah 26. If you have your Bibles open, would you read with me this morning, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 7, where we read, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor, the path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, God, make the way of the righteous smooth. We have a strong city, writes the prophet. God makes salvations its walls and ramparts. 
This other city, this second city, is not some motley collection of houses on a plane. It's not some blip on the map that we pass by and forget. It's not a city that we approach on a long road ship road trip, hoping that there are a public bathroom and maybe a Starbucks so that we can get some extra juice to keep us going on our journey. This city is a shelter. This city is a refuge. This city is home. This is the city of God. It can never fail. It wasn't built by human hands. It can't be destroyed by human hands. Through the work of this city, justice will be done. The oppressed will be oppressed no more. In this city, forgiveness is given for the walls and the defenses are salvation. And from where does salvation come? From the work of Jesus on the cross for each and every one of us. The city of God prophesied about so long before the time that Jesus walked the earth is guarded and protected by the work of Jesus Christ. The work that he did on behalf of all of those living in the first city, the desolate city. The work that he did on behalf of mankind, the work he did for us. The work of taking our sin upon himself and paying the price for it. Taking all of the sin that has grown in us that we have perfected from the time that we were infants. The sin that we have become so prolific at. He took all of it to the cross and there he paid for it with his suffering and death. And then he rose again, defeating sin and death. And as he rose, so rose the walls of our salvation, the ramparts of the city of God set in place for all those who would find shelter there, shelter in the forgiveness and grace of God Almighty in the city that he established. And though we have lived in the city of desolation, God is inviting us to pick up and move, leave our old lives behind and build new lives in his city. He wants us to have a change of address, to move into the city that he has prepared. This is his desire for each of us. Telling others about the wonderful accommodation in this new city is the mission of the church. It is the mission of those living in the city of God. Let those of us already living in the city of God proclaim the greatness of God to those who live in the darkness of the city of desolation. And so here we have the tale of two cities. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. On one hand, we have the desolation of the world and on the other, the glory of salvation in the city of God. And yet as I rest in the knowledge of the salvation that has been given to me in faith, I'm reminded of my time at a boarding school in Minnesota. There were two dorms in this school at Hillcrest, the girls' dorm and then one for the boys, the boys' dorm. We used to joke about how the boys' dorm looked like a prison. It was an unattractive brick building just down the hill from the rest of the campus. The intent of the dorm was was to keep us safe. It had many security measures. And though I know that while many of those measures were put in place to keep those who would do us harm out, in my my immaturity as as a young man, I felt sure that they were there to keep us in. And so being the rebellious young individual that I was, I set about figuring out as many ways to break out of the safety of that dorm as I could so that I could go and enjoy the pleasures of the city that was so near to us and the dangers, the excitement 
of the night. How often, even though the walls are set up for our protection, this this city of God established for our own benefit, how often we journey outside its borders that we might partake of the city of desolation. How often do I still, even though I know better, do I still give in to the sinful desires of my flesh? I know that I'm supposed what I'm supposed to do. The Bible has clearly laid out its instruction, and the benefits are obvious and they are clear. And yet I still sneak out and do what I want to do instead. I still give in to my anger and unleash it on my children, even though they did not deserve it. I still do not honor my wife in all the ways that I should, but instead give in to my pride and my selfishness. Many times, times I know I have known what should be done, and, and there are many times that I do it, right? There are many times that I do continue to follow God's direction in my life, but there are still those times when I know what should be done, and I don't do it. And when we find ourselves sneaking out past the gates of the city of God, do we wonder, do we wonder if we'll be let back in? If we've crossed the line too many times, is this the straw that will break the camel's back? And as we make our way back to the city of God, feeling guilty for our journey into the other city and carrying the shame that we picked up there, do we look at those perfect and beautiful gates, the salvation won for us by Jesus Christ, and wonder, will I be forgiven this time? Or have I finally gone too far? I served a church in Canada for a few years before I went to seminary. And while we were moving up to that great country, there was some confusion due largely to my pastime spent in Canada while my dad pastored a church in Saskatchewan. I'm not going to go into all the details, but suffice it to say that because of the confusion and some poor communication, my name ended up on a watch list. And so every time that I enter Canada, even to this day, They take more time with me. They ask me more questions. They want to know the whole story as to why my name is on this watch list. And there is a distinct possibility that I will be refused entry. I think that sometimes as we make our way back to the city of God, slumped in our shame and the guilt we feel for our latest venture into the city of destruction, I think sometimes we look at those gates and wonder, will I be forgiven this time? Or have I gone too far? Am I on a watch list? And will I be denied entry this time? Church, friends, you are most definitely on a watch list. But it is not the watch list of the guard at the gate. It is the watch list of the father whose prodigal child has left home. And he is standing at the city gates, looking down the road, longing for the return of his child. And as he sees you approaching the city, he runs to you and embraces you. He covers you in his cloak of forgiveness and places upon your finger the ring of grace. And he welcomes you back into the house of the Lord, back into the city of God. You cannot outrun the love of God. The Father knows his sheep. He knows when they leave the pasture and he pursues them and he welcomes them home when they return. How grateful I am for a God who saves, for a God who forgives. I don't know where you are at in your walk with the Lord this morning, but if you have not yet moved your residence 
into the city of God if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but God is working on your heart and you are wondering about changing your residence, man, I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about that. And even though I may not know your name, know that I am praying for you and know that our church is praying for you. And if you have set up residence in the city of God, but you are, you know, taking your continual forays into the city of destruction, know that this is not God's desire for you. This isn't what he wants for you. Fight that urge to travel. Rest in the Lord and let him be your strength for the fight. Submit to his perfect will for your life. And yet when you did not submit perfectly and you make the journey, know that there is forgiveness for you, that Jesus died for you and for the sin that you have committed. Know that God loves you so much that he let his son die in your place, in my place, in our place so that he could have relationship with you, so that he could pour out his forgiveness and his grace upon you. As we close this morning, I would like to end with one more quote from Augustine. He says this, Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly love, or the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory, and the other says to God, You are my glory and the lifter of my head. Let us rest in the one who is our glory and the lifter of our head. What a fantastic, wonderful, powerful, amazing, gracious, and forgiving God we serve. Amen.